At the end of his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul arrived at the port town of Miletus on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. The town was about 30 miles from Ephesus, where Paul had been and ministered for at least two years. He wanted to have a concluding meeting with the elders from Ephesus. So when he was at Miletus, he sent for the elders and asked them to come and meet him at Miletus. Accordingly, they came down. The elders were the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and so they gathered with Paul. These Ephesian elders would have been the same people that Paul was to write to several years later, perhaps four or five years later, when he wrote his letter of Ephesians. The account of Paul's meeting with them comes in Acts chapter 20. And uh, I want to read the last part of this uh, account. And when he had spoken, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all. And they all were, they embraced Paul and kissed him, soaring most of all because of the word that he had spoken to them, that they should see his face no more. And they brought him to the ship. And when he had parted from them, we set sail. The group studying Ephesians this week may want to read this passage from Acts 20 as well, because it has so much background information about Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus. And from a brief reading of it, we can see how much Paul loved these people. He had a, a profound relationship with them. And so this comes out in her prayer, in his prayer that we'll look at a little more. Before we look at Paul's, what Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesians, I want to pray. I want to pray that as we look at these verses, the Lord will help us to see more deeply how we can pray for each other effectively. Lord God, we thank you that this is your word that we're going to look at together. We pray that as you inspire this word originally, so you will inspire our understanding of it. We pray, Lord, that you will give to us a sense of your presence, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to understand, to love, and to respond to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On this third study of our the book of Ephesians, we look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. We're looking at chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. At the beginning of this prayer, the apostle writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. The apostle was kneeling in prayer, probably in his prison cell just as he's prayed and knelt down with his Ephesian elders four or five years earlier. The Apostle Paul was probably writing from his prison in Rome. It appears from what Luke wrote in his account of this at the end of Acts that that prison was probably his own rented house. 
but he would have had a guard there. He would almost certainly have been chained to this guard who was in charge of him. Paul probably knelt down by himself, but it's quite possible that the guard would have knelt with him because when Paul speaks about his imprisonment in Philippians, he says the whole Praetorian guard came to know that my imprisonment was for Christ. Why was Paul praying and what was he praying? He begins his prayer with these words, for this reason. This reason refers back to what Paul had taught in the first two chapters of Ephesians. He was talking about what God had done in and through Jesus Christ. Logan summarized this for us last week. He gave us the headings, who we were alienated from God, from one another, what God has done in and through Jesus Christ, and what we are now as we put our faith in him. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul was unfolding God's eternal plan in Christ. God's plan was to create in Christ a new family. This family was those whom God had brought into relationship with himself, who had come to trust in Christ. Paul is declaring that because of what God has done in and through Jesus on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead, Paul was going to pray for the Ephesians, so that what God had done in Christ would be fully established in their lives. Paul is not doubting that these Ephesians had a living relationship with Jesus, but he wants that initial faith to deepen and to grow and to become increasingly mature. He wants to see these Ephesians transformed into the image of Christ. To this end, Paul prays for four things. And if you picked up a, a sheet as you came in, you have outlined there the four things for which Paul was praying. First, he prays for God's inner strength in the lives of these Ephesians. Secondly, he prays for mutual loving relationships in this church. Third, he prays for them to know the love of Christ. And fourthly, he prays for them to be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul begins his prayer with an introduction. These are his words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul is affirming that these Believers in Ephesus are part of God's one family, and that God is the father of that family. This introduction tells us that Paul is praying about what God intends to do in the family of Christ corporately, and not just about what God was wanting to do individually in the lives of these believers. First, he prays for God's inner strength in their lives. These are Paul's words, that according to the riches of his glory, he may gradually be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul is saying that the strength that we need to serve and love and walk with the Lord does not come from us. It only comes from himself. He says it comes from the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory are unimaginably great. 
They are vast beyond all comprehension. The riches of his glory are what he established and completed and triumphed in through the cross and through his resurrection. It's hard for us to grasp this, but perhaps I can give you a simple illustration. Imagine someone who's begging at, uh, at the metro stop, at the metro station. He gets a few coins thrown at him, and uh, then a very wealthy man comes and stops by. He pulls out his credit card. He gives it to the man. He says, okay, everything is on me for the rest of your life. Now, that, that would be riches beyond all comprehension. And this is what Paul is saying. We have been granted by Christ. Paul drew on that strength himself. Because he wrote in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So he's praying this prayer for the Ephesians because he knew that strength himself. He wrote elsewhere, his strength, God's strength, is made perfect in weakness. I can remember when I first read that prayer, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was an eight-year-old boy. I'd just been dropped off at boarding school, and I was about to spend three, two months apart from my parents, and this was the first time in my life. I was very nervous. I was definitely a rather scared little eight-year-old boy. But I had with me a New Testament, and I looked up the New Testament, this verse in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was my first encounter with this promise. I claimed it, and I discovered that, yes, God could look after an eight-year-old boy at boarding school. I have claimed that promise hundreds of times since, and I have proved by God's grace his amazing all-sufficiency. Jesus, who strengthens us, is in heaven. He ascended there after his resurrection and ascension. He rules the world from his throne in heaven. One day he will return to the earth to restore all things to himself. Some people ask, if Jesus is in heaven, how can Paul pray that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith? That's a good prayer, a good question. I think perhaps the short answer comes from the reminder that Christ dwells in our hearts through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit when we first came to believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit represents Jesus. The Holy Spirit mediates Jesus. The Holy Spirit brings the love, the grace, the power of Jesus into our life. In fact, the Apostle John devoted three chapters in his gospel to writing about this very issue. In chapters 14, 15, and 16, he presents the teaching of Jesus about the person and presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This teaching is partially summed up in John 14, 26, where Jesus said, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. 
We need God's inner strength, his guidance, his power in our lives day by day. We cannot love, serve, worship, and obey him. We cannot overcome temptation without that inner strength from him, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. When a ship has crossed the ocean and is coming into a foreign port, it will often pick up a local pilot who knows the local conditions. A new person comes on board and he takes control. This first thing that Paul prays for is the Ephesians to know the inner strength of Christ and the Holy Spirit in their lives. Through the presence of Jesus, the Holy Spirit fills those who trust in him. A new person comes on board and he takes control. The second thing for which Paul prays is for mutually loving relationships. This is implied in Paul's words that you being rooted and grounded in love may have part with all the saints to know what is the length, depth, and height and breadth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The key words here, I think, are a Jew being rooted and grounded in love. I was reading the commentary by John Stott, and if you don't know who John Stott was, I am very glad to share that with you afterwards. But in his commentary, he commented on these words, and he said this, in the new and reconciled humanity which Christ is creating, love is the preeminent virtue. The new humanity is God's family, whose members are brothers and sisters, whose love their father and who love each other, or should do. They need the power of the Spirit, the presence of Christ, to enable them to love each other, especially across the deep racial and cultural divides that had previously separated them. The phrase that the Apostle Paul uses here is rooted and grounded in love. This employs two metaphors. The first metaphor is uh, botanical, rooted. The picture is of a deeply rooted tree. For our lives in the Christian community to be marked by mutually loving relationships, for us to have genuine and consistent love for our brothers and sisters, we have to put our roots deep down into God's word and into the affirmation of his love for us. As our roots go down into God's word, meditating on and absorbing his promise of love to us, our love for our brothers and sisters grows deeper. The second metaphor is architectural. The grounded, a picture is of a well-built house that has been built on a strong foundation. The botanical metaphor tells us that it is essential for us to put down deep roots, roots into God's word, to be immersed in the infinite love that God has for us revealed in scripture. The architectural metaphor tells us that the story of our lives is like building a house. We are all building a house. What is the purpose of that house? It is to show forth God's love in our relationships, to show forth God's love in our greatest ambition, 
to share forth God's love as our highest priority. The house has to be grounded in love. This is the second thing for which the Apostle Paul prays. Mutually loving relationships in the church, in the body of Christ. He prays that the Ephesians will be rooted and grounded in mutually loving relationships that make visible the love of God himself. Paul then prays for a third thing for these Ephesian believers, that they will know the love of Christ. These are the words of the apostle. May you have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul is here praying that the Ephesians will come to know the very love of Christ himself through their loving relationships in their Christian community. We all know on an intellectual level that God loves us. We know on an intellectual level that Jesus loves us. The best known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, affirms God so loved the world. However, what Paul is saying here, that God's love isn't known primarily, exclusively on an intellectual level, but it has to be on a relational level as well. Having prayed for mutually loving relationships in the Christian community, in the family of Christ, Paul is affirming that through this reality of transformed relationships in the family of Christ, we come to know the very love of God himself. Every good parent will affirm to their child again and again, I love you. Mommy and daddy love you. But it is a child's experience of that love lived out in their daily relationships that is the most profound affirmation that they do indeed love him. If that child is fortunate to have brothers and sisters and experiences the love affirmed by their parents lived out in family relationships, that love becomes the solid rock of their life. Paul is giving utterance to a remarkable prayer in this third petition. The apostle is asking God that members of the Ephesian church, through growing in love for one another in their daily interactions, may come to know the love of Christ himself. This is an amazing thing. Perhaps someone walks into Christ the King for the first time. And what Paul is saying that if that person senses the love of Christ in our midst, they will then be led into that same relationship themselves. This means that the love of God is not grasped exclusively on an intellectual level, but in the world of transformed relationships. I don't really know the love of God until I experience his transformation of my heart towards someone with whom I might find it difficult to get along with. A key phrase in this part of Paul's prayer is, with all the saints. Paul is expecting that through the profoundly transformed and beautiful relationships in this Ephesian church, that the Christian community will know that God in his infinite love and grace is truly dwelling among them. 
Much is doubtless happening in the Ephesian church on an individual level, but it is so widespread that the whole church community is being transformed. That is why the apostle is asking that each member of this church will come to know the love of God with all the saints. It is not just an individual thing he is praying for, but a community-wide thing and a corporate thing. We live in a highly individualistic culture. The vision that we have here is this part of Paul's prayer is that we will see our identity supremely, pre, supremely as being part of Christ's family, not simply as autonomous individuals as our culture affirms. This is totally foreign to our individualistic thinking. God has to transform our thinking about our identity. Our culture of individualism enslaves us. When we come to be part of Christ's family, he sets us free from bondage to individualism. One commentator suggested on the basis of this prayer that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all people, no matter how different they may be from each other. Christ's love is long enough to last for eternity. Christ's love is deep enough to reach the most broken and hopeless people. And his love is high enough to exalt us all to help together. In this prayer, Paul affirms that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. In the first chapter of Ephesians, the apostle had written, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. In the second chapter, he had written about the immeasurable greatness of his grace. And here in the third chapter, he speaks about the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. Such is the God who is transforming the even Ephesian church, the God whose love surpasses knowledge, whose power is immeasurable, and whose rich grace is beyond calculation. This is the third thing for which the apostle prays for the Ephesian believers, that through the experience of an ever-deepening love among themselves, the Ephesian church would come to know the love of Christ himself. The fourth thing for which the apostle prays is that these believers will be filled with all the fullness of God, these are the words of the apostle in his prayer, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What does he mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Let me offer you an analogy. A married couple is celebrating the first anniversary of their wedding. Are they truly husband and wife? Yes, they most certainly are. They have begun married life together. They really know what it is to be a husband and wife. Do they, do they know the fullness of being husband and wife together? I think we'd probably have to answer yes and no. Yes, because they have truly entered into what is real and beautiful, what is good and true. No, because in the coming months, challenges, difficulties and tests will come. These difficulties might even rob them of what they'd experienced 
in their first year of married life. But by God's grace and through the unwavering commitment of both husband and wife, they will continually to deepen their relationship. In the process, they will be entering into the fullness of marriage. In the same way, with our relationship with Christ, as we put our faith in him, we are baptized, we thank him for what he's done on the cross, we ask to receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of his indwelling spirit. We have begun a new and living relationship with God. But Paul asks for the Ephesians that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Building on the young couple analogy, I think we can say that being filled with all the fullness of God is experiencing God's faithfulness through all the challenges and setbacks and disappointments that living the Christian life will certainly include. Being filled with the fullness of God is being enabled by the Lord to remain faithful to him. Being filled with all the fullness of God, in spite of or even because of the challenges, we continue to trust him and to love him. And we hold unwaveringly to his promises. In the New Testament, there are at least 10 references to the fullness of God. Paul writes to the Colossians in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. You have come to fullness of life in him. The apostle John writes in his epistle, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Perhaps the most deep insight into the fullness that we can find in the New Testament comes from the first letter of John. Although he does not use the word fullness, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, we will see Christ face to face. That will indeed be entering into the fullness of God. Until then, the Lord gives us foretastes and glimpses in our present life of that reality of fullness. That is why Paul prays for the Ephesian believers to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May God grant all of us to know his inner strength. May he give us the blessing of mutually loving relationships. May we indeed know the love of Christ himself. And may the Lord grant us to be filled with all the fullness of God, both here and now, and when we meet Christ face to face. Thanks be to God. Amen.